0: Accused of horrible crimes, two women used the media to garner support for themselves in order to avoid prison. Sure, it sounds like something that would occur, and let's be honest, has, in present day. But these events took place nearly 100 years ago, inspiring a play, which became a movie, then another movie, then a musical, and then an Academy Award winning film. Today we're discussing Chicago, the history behind the musical. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Now, if you're not into musicals or plays, don't worry. This is, after all, a history podcast, and this story has a lot of history involving fast women, Guns, booze, jazz, and all the other makings of a timeless tale long before I talk about plays. 1924, the Great War, now more commonly called World War I, ended six years earlier. The United States had had three presidents in three years, Woodrow Wilson, whose term ended in 1921, followed by Warren G. Harding, who died in office at the age of 57 after slightly more than two years in that role. The following week, Calvin Coolidge was administered the oath of office. The 18th Amendment prohibiting the manufacture, sale or transportation of intoxicating liquors meant to limit the influence of booze on the American public was in effect, but as most history nerds know, That didn't keep people from getting the hooch if they wanted it. The 19th Amendment had been ratified four years earlier, giving white women the right to vote. And women were joining the workforce in greater numbers than ever before. Add to these events the rise in industrialization, urbanization, immigration, and the popularity of automobiles, commercial radio, and phonograph records you could enjoy at home. And, well, you have all the makings of the jazz age. Speaking of jazz, the music brought from the South to major cities in the North, like Chicago by African Americans quickly became popular with middle-class whites. Along with jazz came new fashions and fads. Men wore wide, pleated, cuffed pants, while women could be seen in long, slinky flapper dresses. Maureen Dallas Watkins was born a minister's daughter in Kentucky in 1896 and raised in Crawfordsville, Indiana. At the age of 11, Watkins had written a play called Hearts of Gold, which was performed to raise money for charity. It earned $45, which she asked to be donated, quote, to the heathen, end quote. She excelled academically and was an active member in the Sunshine Society and the Press Club. She performed in many of her high school's theater productions. Watkins later graduated at the top of her class at Butler University in Indianapolis. Watkins then headed east to Radcliffe College in Boston with plans to study the classics. Watkins also enrolled in a playwriting workshop at Harvard. By 1922, Watkins had made her way to Chicago, first taking a job in advertising with Standard Oil before landing a position as a cub reporter for the Chicago Tribune. On a copyright for a play she wrote, her address is listed as 1425 North Dearborn Parkway in what is now the Gold Coast. Now, when some say timing is everything, Maureen Dallas Watkins is a fine example of that. During her short time working for the Chicago Tribune, she covered the Leopold and Loeb murder of Bobby Franks, once dubbed the crime of the century. But before that... Watkins was assigned two scandalous murder stories involving women. Well, scandalous for the time, at least. One of the first involved Belva Gartner, born Belva Eleonora Boozinger in Litchfield, Illinois, about 50 miles south of Springfield. Gartner was a 38-year-old twice-divorced cabaret singer when she allegedly shot and killed Walter Law, a married man with one child, on March 11, 1924. Law was found dead in the front seat of Belva's car at 50th and Forestville with a bullet in his temple, an empty bottle of gin, and a pistol nearby. When confronted at her apartment, surrounded by bloody clothing, Belva told authorities she had been out drinking with Law but couldn't remember what happened. A few days after her arrest, Belva would tell Chicago Tribune reporter Maureen Dallas-Watkins, Why, it's silly to say I murdered Walter. I liked him and he loved me, but no woman can love a man enough to kill him. They aren't worth it, because there are always plenty more. Walter was just a kid, 29 and I'm 38. Why should I have worried whether he loved me or whether he left me? Belva and Walter Law had been dancing and drinking at the Gingham Cafe at 68th and Cottage Grove, but she didn't recall what happened after they left. Quote, I wish I could remember what happened, Belva told Maureen Watkins. We got drunk and he got killed with my gun in my car. But gin and guns, either one is bad enough, but together they get you in a dickens of a mess, don't they? Barely three weeks later, another man was killed by a woman under mysterious circumstances. Kentucky-born Beulah Annan was a 23-year-old married woman having an affair when she shot her lover, Harry Calstead, on April 4, 1924, at the apartment she shared with her husband, Al, at 817 East 46th Street on Chicago's South Side. Reports would later claim Calstead didn't die right away and that Beulah sat listening to a song called Hula for roughly four hours while Calstead succumbed to his wound. Anna's story as to what happened changed numerous times, from her reacting in self-defense in fear of being raped, to her being angry Calstead was leaving her, to her telling him she was pregnant, which resulted in a scuffle during which they, quote, both reached for the gun, and she got to it first. By that Saturday, April 5th, 1924, the Maureen Dallas Watkins front page Chicago Tribune article had a headline that read, Demand News for Prettiest Woman Slayer. It recapped the events of the murder, then included this. They say she's the prettiest woman ever accused of murder in Chicago. Young, slender, with bobbed auburn hair, Wide, set, appealing blue eyes, tip tilted nose, translucent skin, faintly, very faintly rouged, an ingenuous smile, refined features, intelligent expression, an awfully nice girl, and more than usually pretty. She wore fawn colored dress and hose with black shoes, dark brown coat, and brown Georgette hat that turned back with a youthful flare. Honestly, if I'd only read that paragraph, I wouldn't be sure if Maureen Watkins was talking about a fashion show or a presumed murder. I should add that Chicago had seven daily papers at the time, and the women of murderous row, as they were referred to, were featured in all those papers almost every day. Other newspapers around the country also ran stories with all these salacious details. According to author Douglas Perry, in his book The Girls of Murder, City, Fame, Lust, and the Beautiful Killers Who Inspired Chicago, lovestruck men sent flowers to the jail, and newly emancipated women sent impassioned letters to the newspaper. While covering jury selection for Beulah Annan, Tribune reporter Maureen Watkins referred to Annan as, quote, pretty claimed Annan, quote, smiled and pouted, sighed and turned RSVP eyes on the jury. During peremptory challenges to potential jurors, which were all male as women weren't allowed on juries, with, quote, a nod of her pretty bobbed head, four bachelors were accepted. Roughly a dozen were sent away because of, quote, fixed opinions as to the guilt of Annan. One man excused from jury duty growled, quote, Too damn many women getting away with murder. Another allegedly claimed, quote, I'd have given her the rope, I would. One man was excused for already leaning toward acquittal, exclaiming that the victim, quote, got what was coming to him, the fool, in a married woman's apartment. In just one day, 12 male jurors were selected to decide Beulah Annan's fate. Then the newspaper did that weird thing I've mentioned before, where they printed the names and addresses of all the men. Very weird. The trials for both Beulah Annan and Belva Gartner were held at the Chicago City Courthouse, which still stands at the northeast corner of Clark and Randolph. As for Beulah Annan, the, quote, beauty-proof jury as Maureen Watkins called them, declared her not guilty on May 24, 1924, less than two months after the shooting of Harry Colstead in early April of that year. Less than two weeks later, on June 5th, the jury returned their verdict in the trial of, quote, Cook County's most stylish defendant, as Maureen Watkins referred to her, Belva Gartner. After six and a half hours of deliberations, they announced she was... Not guilty. Melva Gartner, emotionless through most of the trial, burst into laughter, hugging her attorneys and thanking the jury. Quote, Oh, I'm so happy, she exclaimed, so happy, and I want to hurry out now and get some air. Now, not guilty verdicts in cases like these involving women shooting men were not surprising or new. According to Marianne Constable in a 2006 piece in Triquarterly, the Literary Journal of Northwestern University, Cook County police records show that in Chicago, between the years 1870 and 1930, 265 women killed their husbands. That number includes both legal husbands and common law varieties. Of those 265, only about 24 women were convicted. And in a few cases, some of those convictions were later vacated. In Chicago's Inter Ocean newspaper, a full 12 years before the murderous row women were showing up on the front page of the Tribune, Inter Ocean reporters asked the question Can a woman be convicted of murder in Chicago? Has some intangible defense taken growth that renders her immune from the treatment that would be accorded a man? Under similar circumstances. One of the women in the 1912 article was Jane Quinn, arraigned on killing her third husband. According to Mrs. Quinn, a burglar entered the room in which her husband was sleeping and shot him. And yes, her husband had a life insurance policy. It was soon revealed that Jane Quinn's two previous husbands also died under mysterious circumstances. The newspaper piece wrapped up the Jane Quinn portion with, quote, In the trial, Mrs. Quinn shed tears and fainted a few times. The jury returned a verdict of not guilty. I'm going to stop right here to mention that even after the trials of Beulah and Belva, there wasn't much change in how all male juries viewed women in similar cases. Between 1921, which is three years before the Beulah and Belva trials, and 1930, only 12 of the 186 women accused of killing their husbands appear to have been convicted and served their sentence. That's a little more than 6%. If ever there was a time to kill your husband and get away with it, it was Chicago in the 1920s. Even with her success at the Tribune as a reporter... Maureen Watkins had her eyes set on other opportunities, only staying in Chicago a mere eight months before heading east to study once again under renowned theater professor George Pierce Baker, a founder of the Yale School of Drama. Within a year, a play written by Watkins in the inaugural class of the School of Drama went to Broadway. Initially called A Brave Little Woman, the story was loosely based on the women of Chicago's murderess, Row. Her professor, George Pierce Baker, gave Watkins a near-perfect 98 and sent it off to be considered for the stage. Eventually retitled simply Chicago, it opened at New Haven's Schubert Theater before premiering in New York City on December 30, 1926. The Chicago Daily Tribune described the play as a "quote satirical comedy depicting the methods of shrewd Cook County lawyers to change heartless but beautiful feminine murderers into heroines." End "Quote," the New York Times called it "quote one of the most stirring plays of the season." Beulah Annan was transformed into Roxy Hart with Belva Gartner serving as the inspiration for Velma Kelly. There are certain liberties taken with the original story, but for those in Chicago and beyond that followed the murder trials, it was pretty easy to tell who was based on whom. Billy Flynn, the handsome defense lawyer, was a composite of the women's real-life attorneys. Within a year, a silent film version of the play was turned into the 1927 film Chicago, supervised by Cecil B. DeMille with a blink-and-you'll-miss-him appearance by a young Clark Gable. During her time out east, Maureen Watkins followed Chicago with a play called Revelry, adapted from a novel by Samuel Hopkins Adams, which had a brief Broadway run. Watkins' play, So Help Me God, was scheduled to open on Broadway in October of 1929, before its backers withdrew the play to make some revisions with the crash of the stock market and the onset of the Great Depression. So help me God, never got its Broadway premiere while Watkins was alive to enjoy her efforts. But what about Chicago Theater in the late 1920s? My friend Gary Griffin, theater director extraordinaire, recommended I get the Richard Christensen book, A Theater of Our Own, A History and a Memoir of One Thousand and One Nights in Chicago. Even with that wordy title, it has been an invaluable resource, especially in researching episodes like this. According to Christensen, by late 1929, Chicago theater was feeling the effects not only of the Great Depression, but also the advent of movie talkies. Professional theaters like the Goodman had back-to-back losing seasons and closed as a professional theater. By the 1936-1937 season, the once-bustling downtown theater district of Chicago offered half the productions compared to ten years earlier. Professional theater in Chicago was dying quickly. Around the mid-to-later 1930s, the United States government stepped up, providing subsidies for theaters which allowed actors to work and plays to go up as the Great Depression dragged on. In 1942, Maureen Dallas Watkins' play Chicago was once again made into a film, this time going by Roxy Hart with Ginger Rogers in the lead role. In this version, heavy on tap dancing... The character of Roxy confesses to a murder she did not commit in the hopes that it might jumpstart her less-than-stellar show business career. Roxy Hart was well-received and went on to make over $1.1 million in its first year, approximately $20 million in today's money. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Chicago continued to be performed in small runs over the years, but it didn't become the university well-known stage play it is today, until a Chicagoan named Bob Fosse got a hold of it. Born Robert Louis Fossey in 1927, Fosse was the fifth of six kids born to a Chicago vaudeville performer. Regarded as a child prodigy, Fossey was given tap lessons and appeared on professional vaudeville stages before he was in high school. Growing up, Bob Fossey was obsessed with Fred Astaire, inarguably the king of Hollywood's golden age of musicals. As a boy, Fossey would watch Astaire's famous films and try to imitate not only Astaire's tapping feet, but also his debonair style and enchanting charm. At 13, he joined up with another dancer he knew, calling themselves the Riff Brothers. Fossey attended high school at Amundsen High at Foster and Damon, where he continued to hone his art, while also MCing at a number of burlesque houses at the age of 15. Bob Fosse graduated high school in 1945 and enlisted in the Navy, serving for two years while entertaining his fellow troops. At the end of his tour, he moved to New York City, making a name for himself in productions such as Dance Me a Song and Pal Joey. Fosse got a contract with movie studio MGM that took him to Hollywood in 1953, where he acted, danced, and choreographed. He would later return to the stages of New York, where he battled drug addiction, failed marriages, and increasingly bad health. After directing then-wife Gwen Verdon in 1969's Sweet Charity, Bob Fosse made his second film directing effort in 1972 with Cabaret, which went on to win eight Oscars at the 1973 Academy Awards, including one for Best Director for Fosse, beating Francis Ford Coppola for his film The Godfather. Bob Fosse became the first director in history to win the Oscar, Tony, and Emmy Awards in a single year in 1973 for the film version of Cabaret, the Broadway musical Pippin, and the television special Liza with a Z. That same year, he received an honorary Doctor of Arts degree from Chicago's Columbia College at the college's commencement ceremony. Maureen Dallas-Watkins, who wrote about murderess Roe, Beulah Annan, Belva Gartner, and penned the original play, Chicago, headed to Hollywood in the early 1930s, where she enjoyed success as a screenwriter. Of note, she penned the 1930s Spencer Tracy Humphrey Bogart movie, Up the River, directed by John Ford, and No Man of Her Own, which introduced future spouses Clark Gable and Carol Lombard in their only film together. The 1936 film comedy "Libeled Lady, which Watkins co-wrote and featured William Powell, Myrna Loy, Jean Harlow, and Spencer Tracy, was nominated for Best Picture. With her Hollywood career winding down, Maureen Watkins left Hollywood by 1940 and moved to Florida, where she became a recluse. Fortunately, the money she earned through writing and some wise investments left her well off. Maureen Watkins had resisted all offers to buy the rights to Chicago to be made into a Broadway musical. Some are convinced she came to regret the role her stories may have had played in helping Belva and Beulah to escape justice. Watkins likely believed in their guilt. In 1975, based on a suggestion by Bob Fosse's wife, Gwen Verdon, Fosse, Fred, Ebb, and John Kander finally secured the rights and turned Chicago into a musical. While not a huge success by Broadway standards, it ran for 27 months and 936 performances. Fun fact, in the 1975 Broadway adaptation, the role of Billy Flynn, the charismatic defense attorney, was played by Jerry Orbach, who would go on to film and TV fame in such projects as Law & Order and Dirty Dancing. A revival in the 90s garnered all new interest, and in June of 1997, Chicago the Musical won six Tony Awards, including Best Musical Revival, Best Direction, and Best Choreography. Not surprisingly, based on the success of the late 90s revival of Chicago the Musical, Hollywood decided it was time for a big-budget film version of Maureen Dallas Watkins' story, of the two women accused of murder during Chicago's Jazz Age. Noted choreographer Rob Marshall was hired to direct with Catherine Zeta-Jones as Velma Kelly, Renee Zellweger as Roxy Hart, and Richard Gere as Billy Flynn. In the role of Amos Hart, Roxy's husband, was Chicago-born John C. Riley, who trained at the Goodman School of Drama and eventually became a member of Chicago's renowned Steppenwolf Theater. With a budget of $45 million, the 2002 film went on to make more than $300 million worldwide. Critics were almost unanimous in their praise. Tim Roby, reviewer for the Daily Telegraph in the UK, proclaimed Chicago was, quote, the best screen musical for 30 years. Closer to home, Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half stars, calling it Big Brassy Fun. That, of course, is how I like to be described. Chicago the Movie was later nominated for 13 Academy Awards, winning six, including Best Picture and Best Supporting Actress for Catherine Zeta-Jones. Another fun fact, this was the first time a movie musical had won the Best Picture Award in 35 years. Oliver was the last in 1968. As of this writing, it is currently available on HBO Max if you haven't seen it or want to see it again. Bob Fosse would go on to direct a few more films, including his semi-autobiographical 1979 effort All That Jazz, and the murdered Playboy Playmate film Star 80 Before Dying of a Heart Attack in 1987, with estranged wife Gwen Verdon by his side. Although he moved on to numerous relationships with other women, Fossey and Verdon, although separated, stayed married until the end. Verdon continued to preserve Fossey's legacy, not only as a consultant on the Tony-winning musical Fossey, but also in helping teach her husband's iconic style to new generations of dancers. Verdon died in 2000. Chicago's pride in being the birthplace of Bob Fosse can be seen in the honorary street signs for Bob Fosse Way at Polina and Montrose, not far from his childhood home and on the block of Monroe Street between State Street and Wabash Avenue, site of the CIBC Theater, where numerous touring productions of Fosse's musical Chicago have played over the years. Beulah Annan, the inspiration for Roxy Hart, may have been acquitted of murder, but her life continued to be full of drama. She divorced her husband Al and soon after married a boxer. After just three months, she filed for divorce, claiming cruelty. Beulah Annan died of tuberculosis at the age of 28 while being cared for at the Chicago Fresh Air Sanatorium. She is buried in her home state of Kentucky. <laughs> After her trial ended, Belva Gartner remarried her second husband, whom she had divorced eight years earlier. Their relationship continued to be rocky, but somehow they made it work, staying together until William Gartner's death in 1948 in Wilmette, Illinois. Belva then moved to Pasadena, California, and lived with her sister, Ethel. Belva Gartner, inspiration for Velma Kelly, died of natural causes on May 14, 1965, At the age of 80. Maureen Dallas Watkins died of lung cancer in August of 1969 and was buried near her parents in Buffalo, Missouri. She never married or had kids and left slightly more than $2.3 million, nearly $19 million in today's money, to various academic causes. Chicago Tribune writer Corey Rumor wrote about Watkins in an August 2019 column, remarking on how newspapers around the country barely acknowledged Watkins' passing in 1969. Both the Tribune and the New York Times failed to run her obit. The Florida Times-Union, Watkins' local paper at the time of her death, ran a nine-line death notice. In 2020, after four years of research, Chicago Tribune writers Marianne Mather and Corey Rumor released their book, He Had It Coming, Four Murderous Women and the Reporter Who Immortalized Their Stories. It is a deep dive into the lives of the women from Murderess Row, sparked by the discovery of a box of glass photo negatives, then stored in the Tribune's old basement in the Tribune Tower. I will have links to that book, one of a few that served as source material for this episode, as well as others in the show's notes. Chicago the Musical continues to entertain audiences around the world. It is estimated that in the 50-plus years since Maureen Watkins' death, it has become a $2 billion franchise. Thanks for listening to Chicago, the history behind the musical. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Top notch, Johnny. He can be found at angel eyes art JKS on Instagram or via email at angel eyes art jks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Go see Chicago the Musical when it comes to your town. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.